Hello and welcome to The Beethoven Files, episode 37. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to talk about Beethoven's Mass in C Major, Opus 86, composed in 1807. The work was commissioned by the grandson of Haydn's employer, Prince Nicholas Esterhazy, for a celebration of his wife's name day at the Prince's Palace in Eisenstadt. The Esterhazy family had commissioned Haydn masses to celebrate similar occasions for years, and their expectations were naturally quite high. Of course, Beethoven understandably approached this task with some trepidation. He had certainly, by 1807, proven himself to be one of the more notable composers of the day, but he was not very experienced in composing sacred music. True, his early cantatas had, at least in flashes, showed him to be skilled in summoning up some authentically dramatic moments, but a liturgical work was different, and even an experienced composer of liturgical music might have paled somewhat at the thought of living up to the high standards set by Haydn, as shown in a letter Beethoven had written to the young prince the summer before its performance. I shall hand you the Mass with considerable apprehension, since you, most excellent prince, are accustomed to have the inimitable masterpieces of the great Haydn performed for you. So Haydn was clearly on his mind, and there is little question that Beethoven made some use of Haydn's Masses as models for his own. Jeremy Yudkin points out that Haydn's Nicholas Mass in G major, composed in 1772 but revised in 1802, may well have served as an inspiration for Beethoven, most notably in the opening of the Kyrie movement, which we'll get to in a moment. And, as it turns out, there was a good reason for Beethoven's trepidation in regard to the prince's reaction, since he was not overly pleased with the result of his commission. I'll say a little more about that later. We're not going to look at every movement in detail, but we will devote a fair amount of attention to the Kyrie and Gloria. The opening Kyrie movement in C major, 2-4 time, and with an almost peculiarly extended tempo indication of Andante con molto, assai, vivace, quasi allegretto, ma non troppo. The movement begins quietly and serenely, as is often but not always the case for late 18th and early 19th century settings of the Mass. Some movements of the Mass, for example the Gloria or Credo, tend to inspire a certain type of setting because of the nature of the text. But the text for the Kyrie, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy, is frequently treated almost as a neutral text in masses by Beethoven's main role models, mainly Haydn, Mozart, and Carabini. And as a neutral text, it can be treated stylistically in widely varying manners. In this case, the basses begin by intoning the tonic note by themselves, which was a little unusual in and of itself after which the sopranos, doubled in thirds by the altos initially, present the first major thematic idea. The first phrase begins with a gentle ascent, starting on the third of the scale in quarter notes, dotted quarters, and eighth notes, reaching up by step to the tonic, and then returning by step down to the fifth of the scale. The next phrase is a little more dynamic. It begins with an ascending fourth, followed by a descending step, 
and then repeats the pattern a fourth higher before slowly returning down by step to the tonic note. We'll refer to this introductory idea as theme A. The texture is mostly homophonic here, but there is a little independence between the choral parts. You probably noticed a little dramatic surge as we crescendoed into a chromatic chord near the end of the second phrase. It's really just a secondary dominant chord, which points us, very briefly, toward an A minor chord. But just a couple of beats later, we were back securely in C major. After a brief orchestral interlude, quoting from the introductory phrase, we encounter the soloists, first just the soprano alone introducing a new melodic idea, which we'll call theme B. It's simple enough. The first two bars start on C and then circle around it in eighth notes before it ends one step higher. The next two bars duplicate that pattern a step higher and then are followed by a graceful descent down to the third of the scale. The first four bars of this new theme are then picked up in staggered fashion by the other soloists as we shift into E minor. Here is that section, beginning with the soprano soloist's entrance, including the entrance of the rest of the quartet, and, just four measures after that, the return of the whole chorus. As the movement proceeds, we continue with the alternation of soloists, usually as a group, and the entire chorus, frequently employing melodic ideas derived either from the introductory theme I first played, theme A, somewhat loosely at times, or theme B, first introduced by the soprano soloist. Here's the middle section marked by a switch in the text from Kyrie eleison to Christe eleison after a brief orchestral interlude. It begins quietly with a melodic statement new but clearly derived from earlier themes from the soprano, alto, and tenor soloists. But after just four bars, the full chorus and orchestra enters forte with the same theme. Alto and tenor soloists then extend the passage by repeating the final two bars of that theme as the key shifts to F-sharp minor. The chorus then re-enters and we encounter a more chromatic passage, although still built on the same thematic idea. 
We soon arrived back in E major, but only after experiencing some fairly intense harmonic activity. It's an interesting passage and represents the peak level of intensity within the movement. But this sort of thing is by no means unprecedented. Haydn's mature masses contain some equally adventurous passages, even relatively early within the opening Kyrie movement. As this movement continues, we return to the Christe Eleison text with the reintroduction of theme A, the introduction theme, sung initially by tenors, doubled in thirds by basses. This time around, the section is actually introduced by a sustained note in the sopranos, a variation of the opening bars of the movement where the basses began the opening statement. Eventually, the first three notes are broken off from the theme and spread through the texture, and we crescendo to another climax, this one coinciding with a clever modulation back to C major concluding with a sustained dominant seventh in that key. Now back in the original tonic key, the introduction theme, theme A, returns in a slightly altered form, sung by the entire chorus. Following that, the soloists return, with their original thematic idea, theme B, although in a more abbreviated version this time. And, after a few measures, they're interrupted by a major climax, in which the full chorus enters fortissimo, in powerful block chords with a diminished seventh chord. The diminished chord soon yields to a C major tonic chord, but the intensity level remains high, as the texture is punctuated by stabbing suspensions. Mm -hmm. 
As the Kyrie draws to a close, we encounter a return of the introduction theme, theme A, in C major, sung again by the sopranos, accompanied in a similar manner by the remaining voices and orchestra. The solo soprano also returns with theme B, although the other soloists jump in more quickly this time. We then move quickly to a major 2D climax, fortissimo, with accented downbeats in the orchestra and with sopranos and altos setting up some effective suspensions between them. Soon we're in the midst of a coda, still drawing on the introductory theme and alternating between forte and piano. In a letter to his publisher, who was reluctant to take on the work, Beethoven characterized this movement as expressive of heartfelt resignation. Yet it's by no means a passive movement, and certainly not without a few dramatic exclamations at key climaxes. The Gloria is, however, an altogether different type of movement. Whereas the text for the Kyrie is very brief, the text for the Gloria is relatively long and elaborate, with multiple sections which, predictably, guide the musical form for the movement. The text begins with Gloria in Excelsis Deo, Glory be to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men of good will. And when a movement begins with Glory to God in the highest, you naturally expect some exuberance. The movement is in C major again, and is in common time, and marked allegro con brio and fortissimo. It begins with a full chorus, mostly in block chords, intoning the melody in relatively long note values against faster-moving ascending scale lines in the orchestra. After Gloria has been repeated three times in longer notes, we hear the final part of the phrase in Excelsis Deo in faster-moving eighth notes. After the three vigorous pronouncements of the opening phrase, the second separated by a measure of silence, the third showing just a hint of rhythmic differentiation between the choral parts, the music quiets to piano, first for a restrained orchestral interlude of four bars, and then, somewhat predictably, as we encounter the text in terra pax, and on earth, peace to men of good will. The texture is still mostly homophonic here, but the parts begin to fragment somewhat at the phrase men of good will, as the initial soprano phrase is echoed in turn by altos, tenors, and basses. And for the first time, we experience a key change, moving in the direction of A minor, as the last phrase is sung quietly, coming to a resting point on the dominant chord in A minor. Let's hear that much.
Another brief orchestral interlude pulls us back to C major, and we encounter the next part of the text, quite loudly, initially in broad homophonic chords. We praise thee, we bless thee, we worship thee, we glorify thee. Between the first and second phrase of the text, the brief interlude recurs, and when we come to the text, we worship thee, adoramus te, the dynamics drop down to pianissimo, and the key drops down to B-flat major, but only for a couple of measures. At the words, we glorify you, we return to C major, and initially another broadly homophonic passage, which sits on the dominant chord for several measures against, as usual, more active repeated patterns from the orchestra. But soon, Beethoven enlivens the vocal texture with motives derived from the orchestral interlude, and these are passed around among the voices. We do hint briefly at other key centers in the process, really no more than secondary dominant type chords. But when the section comes to an end, we're back in C major, eventually yielding to another orchestral interlude, similar to the previous ones, but developed at greater length. And now we hear from the soloist for the first time. The tenor sings first, starting on the dominant seventh chord in F major, over lyrical countermelodies from the orchestra, with the new text, Gratius Agimus Tibi, we give thanks to thee for thy great glory. The melodic line, built over the sustained dominant chord, is not an elaborate one. Arguably, the orchestral countermelody is more interesting and it extends only for eight measures, overlapping slightly with the next 2D section in which the chorus takes over, basses and tenors first, and then altos and sopranos singing a variant of the same melody. Eight bars later, the tenor returns with a somewhat more shapely and dramatically intense melody and a new text, Domine Deus, Lord God Heavenly King, God the Father Almighty, as we tilt for a few bars toward D minor and later G minor, but eventually end up back in F major, where the full chorus concludes that part of the text. Here is the first part of that exchange between tenor soloist and the full chorus.
So we have a very familiar pattern here. The various sections of the text are divided up into contrasting musical ideas, although there's certainly a degree of continuity from one to the next, and these sections are partitioned between soloists, in this case the tenor, and full chorus. The next section brings with it a more significant contrast in musical style. This section, beginning with Qui Tolus Peccata Mundi, the grimmer reference to taking away the sins of the world, switches keys to F minor, meter to 3-4 time, and tempo marking to Andante Mosso. Here, the alto soloist delivers a rather austere melody, and the emotional intensity escalates, as it often does when this text is employed. After seven measures of the alto's melody, the full chorus, on an offbeat entrance, enters with a four-note motive including a very effective, accented, stabbing dissonance at the word miserere, or have mercy, and later have mercy upon us. Then the alto continues, but is soon joined in overlapping entrances by the bass soloist and tenor soloist, each with a variant of the alto's original melodic line as we hear further references to the sins of the world. This is set up in such a way that it brings about a modulation from F minor to its relative major, A-flat, a key that's confirmed when the soloist returns with a new descending melodic line. But soon all four soloists join together on the line Receive Our Prayer on a very effective chord that briefly seems to suspend the action even as it crescendos. It's not a terribly unusual chord, it's a half-diminished seventh, a leading-toned seventh chord. But the way the dissonant top note melts down by half-step until it lands on the root of the E-flat chord, the dominant in the key, is very effective. He repeats the effect twice, a couple of bars apart, as we come to the end of this section.
For the next bit of text, translated as, Who sits at the right hand of the Father, have mercy, we hear a return of the full chorus, singing in robust octaves, and a more rhythmically punctuated orchestral accompaniment, also in octaves. But when we again arrive at the text, Miserere, have mercy, the setting resembles the one heard earlier, especially in its use of accented dissonances now also anticipated in inversion in the orchestral accompaniment. Here is the first part of this section, which begins robustly in A-flat major, but when we arrive at the reference to Miserere Nobis, quiets considerably, moving towards C minor and introducing a new ascending melodic line, which is passed from voice to voice. Eventually, the level of tension increases as Beethoven introduces more frequent dissonant chords, including diminished chords, and accented non-harmonic tones, and we crescendo to a stop on a dominant seventh chord. When we arrive at the new text, For thou only art holy, thou only art the Lord, thou only art the Most High Jesus Christ, we experience a significant change in the musical continuity and a new, more majestic tone, very much in keeping with the text. We're now in C major and common time, with a tempo marking of allegro, manon troppo, and fortissimo. We begin with a broad, almost heroic-sounding theme in the orchestra, characterized by block chords and a steadily ascending contour from the tonic note to the fifth of the scale. After ten measures, the full chorus enters with a varied, slightly more rhythmically active version of the same theme, again moving up a fifth, but this time working its way back down to tonic. With the introduction of the next part of the text, with the Holy Spirit in the glory of God the Father, we encounter our first proper fugal passage, 
the subject is presented in the basses, a resolute, rather squarish theme of four bars, stylistically very compatible with the previous homophonic theme. In orthodox fashion, the tenors come in next at the fifth. It's actually a tonal answer, modified slightly to conform to the harmony at that point. The altos come in four bars later up an octave, and the sopranos four bars after that, echoing the tenors. Meanwhile, the tonality has shifted to A minor, due to the chromatic lines generated by the countersubjects carried on by each voice after its presentation of the subject. The first passage of imitation passes quickly, and the texture then drops down to basses alone, against a reasonably busy orchestral accompaniment, including a flowing stream of eighth notes. And the text moves on to, For thou only art holy, thou only art the Lord, thou only art the Most High, Jesus Christ. We still hear fragments of imitation, this time from the top down, but we soon return to a broadly homophonic and quite powerful passage as the text is repeated. This leads to a return of the original fugue theme, as the final part of the text, the Amen, is introduced for the first time. Here's the first part of the fugal section, leading to the more broadly homophonic section, and then up to the beginning of the second fugal section. It's certainly lively and suitably impressive, as you would expect it to be, given the triumphal nature of the text. After part of that text is repeated, we return to the Amen. It's not the final Amen, but we're getting closer. We're back in C major, but Beethoven now introduces a series, seven measures worth, of powerful chromatic chords split between the full chorus and orchestra dropping down in thirds, all the way to a D-flat triad. We're still back in C major before you know it, but that chromatic progression still makes a striking effect. But it is not the big final climax. The dynamics quiet again, and the texture fragments somewhat, with sopranos and altos pairing up against tenors and basses. But the respite is short-lived, after seven bars, we're back to huge fortissimo chords as we hear again the final part of the text, beginning with, For thou only art holy, thou only art the Lord. As the final measures of the Gloria approach, and we move to the final Amen, we hear a slightly surprising contribution from the soprano soloist 
bringing back a variant of the fugue theme. I say surprising because Beethoven has used the soloists very little in the Gloria, and when they've appeared, it's usually the entire quartet rather than the individual soloists. And after another massive tutti on Amen, we do hear from the other soloists, and it almost seems as if we're on the verge of hearing another fugal go-around. But it never develops, and the final grandiose measures are handed to the full chorus and orchestra. Here's a final excerpt from the introduction of the striking chord progression I mentioned earlier to the final bars. I'm only going to play a few excerpts from the Credo movement, but the opening measures are definitely deserving of an excerpt and some commentary. Beethoven provides a rather unusual starting point for the text. The orchestra in 3-4 time and marked Allegro con Brio begins pianissimo, with undulating mostly triadic eighth notes expressing the tonic chord. The complete chorus then enters with Credo, I believe, still quietly, in measure 3 in octaves and unisons on the tonic note, a dotted half note leading to a quarter note. In measure 5, the harmony switches to the dominant chord in first inversion for two beats, as the orchestra continues its arpeggiated pattern. Then the bass line drops again to B-flat as the chorus re-enters, now split into four separate parts, repeating credo again, on a chord which tonicizes the minor subdominant chord, an F minor chord in this case, where Credo is sung for the third and fourth time. It all happens very quickly. As you could hear, we have by now crescendoed up to fortissimo. But the fact that the opening word, credo, is initially sung so softly, by no means the sort of proud declaration of belief we usually encounter in mass settings, 
and that the word is repeated three more times, crescendoing powerfully for the last of those times, all of this establishes an unusual sense of dramatic urgency, even before we encounter the second word of the text. It's certainly a unique way to begin a credo, as a number of commentators have suggested. As the next part of the text is introduced, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and all things visible and invisible, we continue in much the same mode, the chorus proceeding mostly in broad, powerful, homophonic chords, with the faster-moving orchestral accompaniment contributing to the sense of urgency. Here's a little of the next section. The texture is reduced to octaves and unisons, and the dynamics drop down sharply at the words and invisible, but we quickly crescendo back to forte for the line, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. As you heard, the texture continues to switch between full chords and octaves and unisons, with the latter providing some of the most forceful statements. There was a change in key to A minor at the end of my excerpt, and a more significant key change takes place shortly thereafter, when, at the words, God of God, Light of Light, where the dynamic level returns to piano, we find ourselves in the surprising key of E-flat major. Here, the texture thins briefly, and tenors, altos, sopranos, and finally basses each take their turn with a new motive against accented chords in the orchestra. But soon, at the words true God and true man, we return to octaves and unisons, sung fortissimo, again alternating with passages of full chords. We hint at various keys along the way, but in the end, we're back in C major. Here's an excerpt from the key change to E-flat major. When the new text is introduced, who for us men and for our salvation descended from heaven, 
we hear a quiet duet between basses and tenors that eventually expands to take in the altos and sopranos as well, with multiple repetitions of descendit, descending, provided with a mostly falling or descending melodic motive, as you would expect. But we're going to move on now to a more completely contrasting section, an adagio section back in E-flat major, introducing the text, and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man. And it is here, with a shift in tempo to adagio and a new take on the key of E-flat major, that we finally encounter the soloists. They sing, in various combinations, short two-bar phrases, with the tenor having the last word, as he sings, and was made man, with a particularly poignant phrase having recently arrived in B-flat minor. But, as you heard right at the end of my excerpt, that relatively quiet, introspective interlude does not last for long. Soon, the full chorus is back, led in by the basses, with altos, tenors, and sopranos following in a free imitation of the basses' grimly determined three-bar phrase on the words, Crucifixus etiam pro nobis, he was crucified also for us. From this repeated, rather grim descending phrase, we pass to another, similar in basic shape, but very different in effect, because this one is presented almost sotto voce at the mention of Pontius Pilate. Here is that chorus, led by the basses, with the reference to the crucifixion, and later the reference to Pontius Pilate. The soloists now return, echoing similar two-part motives back and forth, mostly piano, on the word passus, or suffering, 
as in, he suffered and was buried. But this soon develops into a very dramatic exchange between soloists and full chorus on the word suffering, abounding in diminished seventh chords. Here's the first part of that passage. At the reference to the resurrection from the dead, there is, predictably, another massive shift in mood, the tempo increasing to allegro ma non troppo. We move to D major, and the bass soloist enters, forte, with a triumphal melody which ascends up the scale for four bars before coming back to the starting point in the next four. The opening measures of this new theme are then broken off and distributed throughout the full chorus before all voices once again join together in forceful unisons and octaves. Here's the first part of the new section. There's still quite a bit of text to get through, of course, and the soloists eventually get another opportunity for the next section of the text. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and Son together is worshipped and glorified. But for the most part, we hear the entire chorus, either boldly or relatively quietly, as befits the text. There is another fugal section when, back in C major at this point, we move to Vivace, with a fast-moving fugue subject designed to build up a head of steam before we come to the conclusion of the movement. The alto soloist briefly gets a chance to take her turn with the fugue subject, but it's mostly the chorus we hear, building up to a fortissimo climax. And then, a few measures before the end of the movement, the soloists show up again, very briefly, for a couple of measures under the spotlight before the full chorus finishes off the final amen with notable enthusiasm. But we are going to move on now to the Sanctus and Agnus Dei, although only relatively small sections of each. 
Although Haydn was clearly his model in many respects, Beethoven also seemed, at least at times, to strive toward the serene, relatively simple piety embodied in some liturgical music from the Renaissance, even though Beethoven's harmonic vocabulary was naturally quite different. For example, in his directions to the performers, he urged that they approach the Sanctus with the utmost simplicity. The movement is in a major common time and begins adagio, and it does clearly have a somber, meditative air about it for the first part of the text, Holy, 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 Lord God of Hosts. The next part of the text, Heaven and Earth are full of thy glory, is naturally given a more vigorous treatment. We're going to hear an excerpt, starting with the Ozana section. It's another fugue with a three-measure subject characterized by a pair of large ascending leaps which give it a highly distinctive quality. After each voice, starting with the sopranos, has run through the subject, the first bar of each new entrance overlapping with the final measure of the voice that preceded it, we crescendo into an aggressively homophonic fortissimo explosion of the final line, Hosanna in excelsis. The Sanctus section comes next, switching to F major, an interesting tonal juxtaposition, 2-4 time, and Allegretto ma non troppo. Here, the soloists begin the movement alone, all four initially in homophonic fashion, but later fragmenting into individual parts, and trading off a three-measure motive which resembles the fugue theme you just heard in its reliance on leaps and gentle syncopations. Soon the full chorus enters, quietly, exchanging motives with the soloists. The two groups continue to trade off, but there's no question that the solo quartet plays a larger role than usual here, and a very effective one at that. Here's a part of the exchange between soloists and chorus, where Beethoven moves away from the key of F major and begins a gentle journey through three other keys, including D major, where the chorus intones, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, before moving rather abruptly to C major and handing the reins back to the soloists.
Beethoven eventually pushes us toward a climax of sonority and dynamic intensity until the movement fades away quietly, only to switch us back to a major and a return of the Ozana fugue that brings the movement to its rather boisterous conclusion. But we'll move on to the final movement, the Agnus Dei, the text for which is Lamb of God, who takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us, Lamb of God, grant us peace. Beginning in C minor, twelve at time, and poco andante, the movement starts very quietly, but crescendos quickly when the full chorus enters, landing on a dramatic diminished seventh chord. But it then quiets immediately, only to again burst forth a little later. Here's the first part of the opening. The level of intensity diminishes from time to time, but shifts between gentle lyricism and stark drama are frequent and often unprepared. This changes naturally when we encounter the peaceful Dona Nobis Pacem, Grant Us Peace section, in C major, begun by the soloists, but soon taken up by the chorus. But as we return to the first part of the text, with the emphasis on Have Mercy on Us, the clouds darken once again. But that is the final glimpse of the darker side, and from that point to the end, the Dona Nobis Pacem text prevails. And even though we experience some slight of hand modulations, or near modulations, as we proceed, the music remains gently confident to the end.
In the final measures, we even hear a backward glance at the opening Kyrie theme, an unusual gesture at this point in a liturgical Mass. I mentioned earlier that the young prince was not particularly pleased with Beethoven's Mass. Historians have been quick to point out that that particular performance was probably mediocre at best. The singers were underprepared. Several had not even been present at the dress rehearsal. And yet the prince's negativity likely went further than the quality of the performance. Biographer Thayer reports that the prince, after the performance, said to the composer, But my dear Beethoven, what is this that you have done again? Thayer goes on to suggest that this remark was probably followed by others equally critical. To make the episode even more unbearable for Beethoven, this comment appears to have been overheard by another notable composer of the period, Johann Nepomuk Hummel who had taken Haydn's place as court composer. Hummel apparently found the prince's remark amusing, and this naturally infuriated Beethoven even more. At any rate, Beethoven left Eisenstadt the same day. What exactly was the nature of the prince's complaint? He later elaborated on his displeasure in a letter to a friend. Beethoven's mass is unbearably ridiculous and detestable, and I am not convinced that it can ever be performed properly. I am angry and mortified. So what had the prince expected? In what way did Beethoven's Mass fall short of those expectations? Biographer Swafford, who has an especially illuminating discussion of the Mass, states, The court expected brilliant perorations, high drama, suffering, exaltation, all the moods of the text in high Beethovenian style. What it got was a work gentle, devotional, and ceremonial. It's certainly a reasonable hypothesis, but I'm not sure it tells the whole story. There are certainly dramatic moments in the work, some in every movement. And there are also a number of idiosyncrasies or novel characteristics, some of which I've pointed out. So when Beethoven later said of the Mass, I believe I have treated the text as it has seldom been treated, his point is not without foundation. But while the prince may have expected a certain sort of Beethovenian drama and was disappointed not to find it, I think it's also likely that he was troubled by what he did find, particularly in regard to musical continuity. You may recall from an earlier episode the complaint that the music of the younger Beethoven would sometimes pass from one idea to the next with little sense of organic connection or consistent musical flow. 
Since those earlier days, Beethoven had mastered the ability to compose instrumental music where those concerns, if they still existed on some level, were completely swallowed up by the power and richness of his musical ideas. Now, in writing a work where the form of each movement was largely dependent on the text and the musical traditions associated with that text, Beethoven's sometimes disrupted musical flow, surging up to a climax, backing away just as quickly, may well have been heard as a disturbing element. Haydn had naturally also divided the text into different musical sections, but within those sections, his musical flow had generally been more continuous. But whatever the prince may have found problematic about Beethoven's Mass, the composer himself still thought of it as a worthy effort and sought other performance opportunities for it. And he was annoyed when publisher after publisher showed no interest in it, with Breitkopf and Hartel finally agreeing to take it on for free. But while his venture into liturgical music may have been something less than successful, Beethoven's confidence level remained high, and a number of conquests lay directly ahead. For our next episode, we'll look at his great Fifth Symphony in C minor, Opus 67.